The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. You guys are brave souls coming in here. <laughs> this meeting. Um, when I learned I had to prepare for this talk, um, I was pretty excited but also very overwhelmed. Um, the legacy of Stalinism spans from 1924 till today. It's about 90 years. So if I spent, you know, broke it down by each year, I would have about 30 seconds to speak on each year. And that's, obviously I can't do that. Um, I can't talk about every revolution that Stalinism um, had a hand in ruining. And I can't talk about each and every Stalinist and Maoist group we see in the United States, what positions they hold, and uh, what their acronym is. My <laughs> um, but I do hope to provide a framework for how to understand where these politics come from. And although I can't look at the effects of Stalinism on the working class movements around the world, um, I'll try to show the disastrous effects of Stalinism and the two greatest upsurges in U.S. working class struggle, um, the 1930s and the 1960s. And it's uh, the harmful ways I think that those politics um, have carried into the left today. Um, if there's a theme to my talk, it's that in no way can Stalinism be seen uh, as in the tradition of Marxism. Uh, Stalinism is uh, not a little revision of Marxism, that it's actually the negation of Marxism. Um, from its origins, to its theory, to its practice, and its legacy into today. Um, so Stalinism wasn't simply uh, the product of an individual with a particularly backward set of ideas. Um, it's not the case as history books portray that um, revolutions inevitably lead to Stalinism. Um, and it's not as anarchists portray that um, having a, a party or a revolutionary organization inevitably leads to Stalinism. In fact, there's a particular set of circumstances that enabled the ideas of Stalinism to be born, to take hold, to spread, and to flourish. Um, Stalin's rise was not the inevitable result of the Russian Revolution in 1917, but it's actually the result of its isolation, its destruction, and its ultimate failure. Virtually every revolutionary in Russia knew that the success of their re revolution depended on the spreading of, of the revolution internationally. And this stems from Marx's understanding that because capitalism is a global system, the struggle between the, uh, between the working class and the ruling class must be global as well. Without a socialist revolution spreading globally, the revolution would be isolated, starved, and stamped out by the ruling class internationally, who never give up their power willingly. Um, unfortunately, this is exactly what happened. Um, the international ruling class attempted to organize a counter-revolution in Russia with the invasion of uh, 14, 15, 16 white armies in collaboration with the ex-Tsarists in Russia to uh, foment years of civil war. And the impact was that the material basis for socialism, that is having an economy that can produce enough um, for enough to go around, and the working class to run society based on um, the interests of human need instead of profit, that was destroyed. And especially in this context, then, internationalism wasn't just an abstract theoretical principle. Um, it was a desperate necessity. A successful revolution in a more developed country would mean linking up the working classes um, and their economies to rebuild the material basis for socialism, to rebuild industry and the power of the working class. Now, in 1919, the Russian revolutionaries initiated the Third International, is also known as the Comintern, and I'll probably refer to it as the Comintern throughout this talk, um, to help generalize the lessons of the Russian Revolution and facilitate the spreading of revolution uh, around the world. And this wasn't a utopian pipe dream. Um, this revolutions were happening, they were a fact, um, and the question was whether or not they would succeed. 
Um, so unfortunately, they did not, and that's a whole other talk and another topic um, altogether that I can't get into. But as the revolutions failed abroad, uh, most devastatingly in Germany in 1924, more and more a bureaucracy began to stand where the working class once had to manage the functions of the society that the working class once had. And the bureaucracy's existence and strength, therefore, was based on a weak working class in Russia. But really, its strength was also only possible as long as revolutions abroad failed, and the working class remained weak there as well. Um, this is because the socialist revolution in another country would have meant concrete steps towards repairing the strength of the working class in Russia, and therefore their self-rule of society without the bureaucracy. So as you can see, Stalin didn't invent the bureaucracy, um, but he did play a central role in leading it. Um, he, more than any other individual, shaped and welded together the interests of the bureaucracy, and he gave it a political focus. And this is important. The class nature of Marxism, the Bolsheviks, and the Russian Revolution was the self-activity, the self-emancipation, and the rise to power of the working class. Stalin's political rise on the world historic scene uh, is, is based on the rise of a bureaucracy whose strength was predicated on the destruction, the demoralization, and the isolation of the working class in Russia and internationally. So even the material roots, the class nature of Stalinism are the exact opposite of Marxism. And as a, a you know, kind of a fun fact, so to speak, that supports this, Stalin actually played no significant role in the making of the Russian Revolution itself, the insurrection. He had to have his Soviet historians uh, write him into this history by inventing a committee for him to supposedly be, be on. Um, so Stalin, Stalin's politics were actually horrible for revolutions, but they were perfect for leading a bureaucracy. Um, so that brings me to the theory of, of socialism in one country, uh, which was introduced by Stalin in 1924. Very simply, the, social, the theory of socialism in one country was that the idea uh, that a socialist revolution did not need to spread internationally um, to survive, that socialism could be built within the walls of Russia alone. And this is a, re a reversal of the position held by virtually every revolutionary in Russia um, at the time, including Lenin and Trotsky. Um, it was a reversal of Marx's internationalism. Um, but socialism in one country was less about principle and more about um, a, a respond to a need of the emerging bureaucracy. Marxism understands that if revolution fails to spread, then socialism is not possible in Russia. In this case, how could the bureaucracy justify its rule? Uh, the answer Stalin came up with was that uh, to just change the Marxist theory. Um, socialism in one country provided a theoretical justification for the rule of the bureaucracy. And when the gap between theory of Marxism and what was actually happening, the reality, became so great, Stalin had to make revisions to Marxism. And this touches on another legacy, I think, of Stalinism, which is the revision, the butchering, the chopping, the screwing, the hacking apart of Marxism until it meant virtually nothing at all. For Marxists, theory is a guide to practice, and the goal is fusing of these two things together. For Stalin, Marxism, uh, the Marxist theory was used to hide reality, to justify practice while keeping a revolutionary-sounding facade. In this way, Stalin turned Marxism into a kind of state religion, masking what was going on. Marxism was just there. It was undynamic and unchanging dogma. It was timeless and perfect, just like religion supposedly is. Um, and Stalin, um, of course, you know, gave himself the role of the most orthodox priest of this, this religion. And he you know, said that, you know, of course, ordained by Lenin himself, which is the, uh, actually the opposite. If there's a, I don't know if the talk already happened. It's, the, it's tomorrow? 
So people should really go to the talk. It's um, Paul uh, D'Amato speaking on Lenin's struggle against Stalinism, where you know he sees this is the last Lenin's last battle. Um, now everyone knows religion. Um, it can take it can it can take away uh, some of the emotional pain of living through a tough life. It can help distract from uh, looking reality in the face. But everyone also knows that you can't live on religion alone. Even the Pope has to eat. Um, and I'm sure he eats very well. Um, in Russia, it became clear uh, pretty quickly that as good as socialism in one country sounded, the reality of being an island of socialism in a sea of capitalism uh, meant dealing head-on with the pressure of the world capitalist economy. It meant survival or defense from international imperialism. And how does one survive in capitalism where, where competition for profits is the law of the land? Well, Russia, the Russian state did what any capitalist trying to stay in business does. It did, through, it did so through rapid industrialization and manufacturing of weapons for defense in what was known as the Five-Year Plan in 1928. And like capitalism, uh, production took place with uh, appalling methods, unbelievable brutality and oppression, work camps, and destruction of the working class's rights. And here we reach another um, aspect of the legacy of Stalinism. Far from a, uh, a representative of the Russian Revolution, he actually led a counter-revolution um, against the October 1917 Revolution. Uh, the first five-year plan amounted to the severing of the working class of all its power in society and economically subordinating it to uh, the interests of capital accumulation. To accomplish this, um, uh, he had to do so in the name of Marxism, um, and, and to do so in the name of Marxism, Stalin had to stamp out uh, resistance. Um, and its main resistance was anyone that carried with them the experience or even the memory of the October Revolution. And first and foremost, that meant the Bolshevik Party. The Bolshevik Party needed to be transformed from an organization of uncompromising Marxists and internationalists who could think on their feet and lead dynamic struggles in their workplace, who could and did argue, who openly disagreed, even with Lenin, um, debated their ideas out within the party, and could also act in unison on a mass scale when they needed to. The Bolsheviks needed to be transformed from this organization specializing in the leading of working class struggle into a monolith where members were evaluated and promoted based on their adherence to the official party line, which was proclaimed, of course, by Stalin, no questions asked. This was accomplished with brutality, with show trials, purges, terror, murder, forced labor, and sabotage, all the traditional methods that you see in a counter-revolution. And this played out not just in Russia, um, but communist parties internationally had to be transformed with similar methods around the world. So we have Stalinism to thank for Leninism, over time being associated with nothing more than uh, the idea of following the party line, um, being handed down from above. Uh, <coughs> Socialism in one country and the counter-revolution organized um, in its name marked a shift in the role of the Comintern and Communist parties internationally, and even more so in 1928 as this counter-revolution um, was taking place. Uh, if, Stalin, if socialism could be made in Russia alone without world revolution, and socialism in Russia was under attack, thanks. Um, then the primary role of socialists around the world was to support and def defend this already existing socialism from uh, military intervention. Organizing revolution in your own country became a secondary matter, something to be put off uh, later until Russia was safe, um, and socialism was safe, therefore. 
Uh, the role of rev revolutionaries was no longer about the class interests of the workers. It was about the national interests of Russia. So the common term, which started with the momentum and prestige of the successful Russian revolution to facilitate revolution around the world, essentially turned into an organization to carry out Russian foreign policy. Aside from a period of um, ultra-leftism, um, in between, which I don't have time to get into, maybe we could talk about it in discussion, um, what this meant in practice for revolutionaries was to act as pressure groups on the respective ruling classes, downplaying revolutionary politics in the interest, um, the revolutionary politics and the interests of the working class um, for fear of alienating potential friends and allies in their governments. And you could see how this might result, and did result, in a drift of revolutionaries into reformist politics. And there are many, many, many examples of this um, internationally, uh, but I thought it would be most useful because I figured most people in this room today would not have uh, knowledge necessarily of the world. I mean, it's just incredible trying to read about all the revolutions and all the working class movements that uh, the communist parties really played a, a hand in destroying. I thought I'd focus on the 1930s, um, which was the largest upsurge in working class struggle in the U.S. Now, the 1930s were seen, uh, not seen, they were a time when the working class had a real opportunity to fulfill its revolutionary potential. Strikes tripled between 1933 and 1934. In 1937, half a million workers engaged in sit-down strikes, uh, which you know I think is the most militant form of workplace action. Uh, Communist Party militants actually played a role in leading many of these struggles. They attract to their ranks uh, many of the best working class fighters. The party took on racism head on um, by organizing black sharecroppers in the South, by organizing the campaign for justice of the Scottsboro Boys, and united blacks and whites across the country. It's tremendous work. And this is, this, uh, there's a book called Communists in Harlem in the 1930s during the Depression. People should absolutely read this book. Um, I think it's a real model for the kind of organizing uh, that, we, that we should be doing in the U.S. Um, by 1938, the CP had uh, in the U.S. had grown to a membership of 82,000. So it's about 1,000 people at this conference. Imagine a conference of 82,000. We'd have to have it at some kind of stadium or something. I don't know, I don't know how that would work. I probably wouldn't be speaking about it. Um, <laughs> And they, they had developed a base inside the industrial working class, um, a real base inside, especially inside the CIO, the uh, Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, but after Hitler came to power in Germany, Stalin began to realize that Hitler represented a potential threat to the Soviet Union. He therefore began to seek out allies um, around the world, specifically with President Roosevelt in the United States. This meant that after previous years of unapologetic, anti-racist working class struggle, the CP made a 180-degree turn toward the strategy of supporting full uh, support of Roosevelt. And this is what is known as the, the Popular Front. There was a good talk yesterday on the Popular Front. Um, if the most important thing uh, for the CP was Roosevelt's electoral victory, um, of course, step one would be putting the brakes on any militant workplace action that might harm his reelection chances. But in addition to using their leadership position to suck the wind out of the sails of the greatest upsurge in working class struggle in the U.S., the CP played a role, uh, I think, that resulted in some disastrous con uh, consequences that we see today as we're building a left. And I'll cover three of them. Um, the first is that the, the Communist Party used any means necessary to help dismantle the best chance we've seen in this country in breaking the two-party uh, duopoly, the, the Democrats and Republican stranglehold on electoral politics. 
1937 in this country, a Gallup poll showed, showed that at least 21% of the population supported the formation of a national farmer labor party as an alternative to both the Democrats and the Republicans. Inside the labor movement, this sentiment was even stronger. In 1935, the United Auto Workers, the UAW, uh, the convention voted overwhelmingly to support and give assistance to the formation of a national farmer labor party. They even voted down a resolution supporting Roosevelt for president. Mm -hmm. In response, the Communist Party members rooted inside the CIO, um, inside their leadership, they actually literally used blackmail. They pulled the UAW members aside and explained that either the convention would agree to support Roosevelt or the CIO would revoke all of its funding for the UAW to organize their auto industry. And of course, the vote was promptly uh, reversed. The Communist Party organized schemes in other areas of potential breakthroughs, and they did so by creating fake local labor parties to siphon votes into the Democratic Party in Roosevelt's re-election campaign. Um, when reading these stories, uh, I couldn't help but think about how labor leaders in Wisconsin were calling on activists to leave the occupation of the Capitol building and instead march to the ballot box with a strategy of recall, a strategy that I think has similarly sucked the wind out of the sails of our movement today. In addition to helping wed the working class to the idea of the Democratic Party as the party of the people, uh, the Communist Party also played a role in, in wedding labor to U.S. imperialism. After the, second, uh, uh, after the U.S. entered the Second World War, the Communist Party union leaders became some of the most tireless advocates of speed-up, peacework, and the no-strike pledge. After all, uh, this is the sacrifice that Roosevelt requested of the working class to prosecute its war. And since Roosevelt entered the war on the side of the Soviet Union, the CP saw it as their job to deliver. Communist Party leaders ordered their members to scab on strikers. They uh, flagged militants um, uh, to the government and to their bosses, and even organized physical assaults on workers that defied Roosevelt. Um, and these politics you know, carry on today. I think in some ways, I saw on, um, I got an email recently that the AFL-CIO has banned any news and information about uh, the wars of Iraq, Afghanistan, and Libya from their website. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Um, so the, the last aspect I'll cover, the legacy of Stalinism on the mass radicalization in the 1930s, is that I think all these things combined laid the groundwork for the, the era of McCarthyism. Um, in 1937, the ruling class would not have dreamed of launching something like the Red Scare. Um, because the working class was too strong, too united, too militant at the time, sucking the wind out of the sails of the strike movement and supporting the attacks that weakened the working class provided the opening the ruling class needed to finish its job. Um, McCarthyism didn't begin the reversal of the greatest working class upsurge in U.S. history, um, but it did help to finish it um, after the groundwork had been laid by the CP. So as you can see um, from this history, the politics of Stalinism um, takes the working class out of the driver's seat of history where Marxism puts them and it demands that workers take a back seat to sections of the ruling class and the middle classes. After the Second World War, Stalinism took this reversal of Marxism a step further when the Soviet Union massively expanded its Eastern Bloc um, into the Eastern Bloc through military conquest and agreements with the West, something that I don't think you could call anything other than imperialism. Um, the British socialist Tony Cliff uh, summed up the implications in a speech. And I'll spare you my British accent. <laughs> Not so bad. Come on, <laughs> um, if you accept that Russia was a worker state coming out of the war, 
then Russian expansion was not imperialism, but really the spread of the worker states internationally. You can say that if you say this, um, then Marxism is dead because Marxism is based on the self-activity of the working class. And this brings me to what I think is probably the most important legacy of Stalinism for us today. Stalinism totally reversed Marx's definition of a socialist country. For Marxists, a socialist country is based on the following. The self-emancipation of the working class, that is, the, the revolution has to be the act of the working class itself. Workers direct control of society at the point of production and the dictatorship of the proletariat. And of course, the goal is to, for the state to disappear altogether um, into a classless society. Marx talked about the wither, withering away of the state. I would just want to be, to be clear, I want to define the dictatorship of the proletariat, as Marx and Engels do, in a pretty reputable source of their ideas, the Communist Manifesto. Uh, the first step in the revolution by the working class is to raise the proletariat up to the position of ruling class to win the battle of democracy. And this is the way that Marx, in a pretty simple, clear-cut sentence, defines the dictatorship of the proletariat. Notice that the working class is at the heart of each of Marx's def uh, each aspects of Marx's definition, where Stalinism strips the working class from any de <coughs> definition of socialism at all. Stalinism takes the working class out as makers of revolution. It says that a socialist country can exist without direct working class control of production, that instead all is needed is state control of an economy. And according to Stalinism, that state doesn't need to be run by the working class. Um, it can be run by a party. It can be run by one party, no matter what class makes up this party, as long as it uses the rhetoric of Marxism and proclaims itself socialism or socialist. Um, and this was the case of the Chinese Revolution in 1949, where a revolution was not carried out by the working class, but by a military of middle class intellectuals led by Mao Zedong. This is the first of a string of nationalist revolutions um, in the so-called Third World. They kicked out imperialist powers and declared themselves socialist. Um, Maoism or Third World Nationalism combined two things that I think are have had particularly poisonous influence on um, the other great upsurge of radicalism in the U.S., the late 1960s and early 1970s. First was the idea that socialist revolution could be accomplished by a military of intellectuals on behalf of the working class. The role of revolutionaries, therefore, was not to help to raise the working class consciousness, not to help uh, raise confidence of the working class, and not to help class struggle of the working class, but to help the working class, um, not to play, help the working class play its historic role in overthrowing capitalism. Maoism meant that all you need is a small handful of the most dedicated, the smartest, and the most militant revolutionaries, and of course, with some guns, uh, to substitute for the action of the working class. Now, who decides who these people are? Well, they do, of course. Um, it didn't matter what the situation was, what the state of the movement was, or what kind of obstacles were in the way. All that was needed was the right leadership and the right ideas, and you could accomplish anything, even a revolution. The only idea, um, the other idea that the politics of Maoism brought to the left was that the main struggle in society was not between classes, but between the first, uh, the imperialist first world and the exploited third world. Stalinism already meant seeing the world divided up primarily between states, those, that is, those allied with the Soviet Union and those allied against it. But by the late 1960s, many radicals in the U.S. had become disillusioned, rightfully so, with Stalinism, <laughs> 
And they watched the Soviet Union literally drive tanks in, crushing the Hungarian Revolution in 1956, the Prague Spring student um, uprising in Czechoslovakia in 1968. Um, and students were in the U.S. were equally disgusted and radicalizing by, in reaction to the expanding U.S. war in Vietnam. The idealistic morals of a romantic idea of, band of a band of enlightened revolutionary guerrillas kicking out imperialist pigs and bringing a revolution to the people appealed especially to a young and quickly radicalizing activist in the United States. Um, but this more radical-sounding version of Stalinist politics was an utter disaster for the left. These politics, um, taken to their logical extreme, produced groups like the Weathermen. Um, they argued that the majority of Americans were bought off, and the best that revolutionaries in the U.S. could do was destabilize the current system uh, to strengthen resistance elsewhere in the world. And after the social movements began to ebb in the 1970s, they turned to terrorist activities such as bombings and bank robberies. These activities uh, did little, I would argue, <coughs> to wound the U.S. state. Um, in fact, I think they helped to strengthen the, the, the state in the United States by isolating the left by giving the state an excuse to ramp up the level of repression against all of the left. The other effect that Maoism had in the U.S. was that it led uh, large sections of the left away from class politics and into the framework of identity politics. Identity politics is the idea that oppression uh, uh, can only be fought by those that experience it. And those that do not experience a particular form of oppression can only play a supportive role in that fight uh, against it because they actually gain material benefit from oppressing other people. Maoists argued that uh, workers in the U.S., and white workers in particularly, benefited from the privilege of living in an imperialist nation. Um, struggles by workers against speed-ups or against layoffs, and especially for better pay, therefore, were not struggles against exploitation, but would actually increase exploitation of people in the third world. The practical conclusion was that the, a revolution could only come from oppressed people from outside the United States. Therefore, workers in the U.S. could only play a supportive role to that struggle by renouncing their, their privilege. Um, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see how this could be a poisonous idea for the left. Um, instead of what was needed to take the struggle forward in the 1960s and early 70s, that is the knitting together of all the social movements into a revolutionary movement, um, a revolutionary movement of the working class, the only force capable of uniting all these movements um, and with enough social power to take down uh, the U.S. ruling class, the working class was seen as a part of the problem. That brings me to um, my last major point about the legacy of Stalinism before you know I start wrapping up. Where am I out of time? You're almost at 30. All right, so maybe... Okay, I'll be all right. Um... And that's the, um, the legacy and the role of uh, the legacy of Stalinism and Maoism um, on the politics of anti-imperialism in this country on the left. Stalinism developed a framework that saw the world divided between, primarily between nation states, um, which states were labeled imperialist and which ones were deemed anti-imperialist changed <coughs> as the needs of the Soviet Union changed. So when Stalin uh, had a pact with Hitler in 1939, the U.S. was seen as an imperialist pig. Uh, but only two years later, after Stalin broke this pact and invaded Russia, the U.S. was the leader in the fight against fascism. Which state Stalinists decided to defend is not consistent, but their approach to anti-imperialism, I think, is quite consistent. Stalinists argue that the working class of the oppressed nation must subordinate its own independent organization 
and its own class interests to the united struggle of all classes in that oppressor nation. And this is how you can, uh, you can see how Stalinists today support Ahmadinejad's re repression of protesters in Iran, or Gaddafi as he guns down uh, Libya's contribution to the Arab Spring. Their logic amounts to the su uh, supporting of any dictator that is the enemy of their enemy. In other words, their logic is the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Our approach to anti-imperialism can't be based on nationalism. It must be based on working class internationalism. We must always uh, oppose our own government in its wars for profit and power. The only war that the U.S. can carry on under capitalism. Um, but uh, that doesn't mean that we defend or support dictators like Gaddafi. Um, instead, while we oppose U.S. or Russian or Chinese imperialism for that matter, uh, we also support the right of workers, students, and poor people in these countries to rebel, to build social movements, and to fight for their democratic rights. We think U.S. imperialism is best opposed not by state power uh, of corrupt bureaucratic leaders and dictators, but by rebellion from below. And I think that the U.S. and Israel would agree with this point after witnessing the effects of the Arab Spring on the, pal the prospects for Palestinian liber uh, liberation. Uh, a member in New York City at, at one of our meetings said, the Arab, the Arab Spring is our Palestinian peace process. It's made tr so much more in weeks of struggle so much more progress than um, dictators sitting at a table with the U.S. And with that, um, I'll wrap up. Uh, this talk was not an uplifting one. I understand that. <laughs> um, summed up the legacy of Stalinism, uh, I would describe it as, as the following. Uh, one, the reversal of virtually all the central pillars of Marxism. Two, the destruction of the working class movements and the smashing of their revolutions. Three, the building and defense of bureaucratic state dictatorships. Four, the transformation of revolutionary organizations to do the bidding of these dictatorships. And five, the associ association of all of this with Marxism and socialism. Luckily, we live in a time when young people radicalizing haven't experienced the Cold War or the Soviet bloc. Uh, only 20, uh, 20 years outdated textbooks, you know, prominently talk about McCarthyism. Um, and just a couple years ago, Republicans tried to smear Obama as a socialist, and it actually boosted his popular, popularity ratings. Um, now we are seeing a global wave of resistance. People are radicalizing much quicker and are gravitating towards revolutionary politics. Um, the old Stalinist left still exists. It exists in this country. It exists around the world. And they still play a disastrous role. It's our job to learn where these politics come from, to learn uh, the disastrous role that those politics have had in our struggles and therefore our lives. And our job is to make sure that the politics of Stalinism do not define the ideas, the strategy, or the direction of our movements. But it's also our job to put forward an alternative to those politics. We need to put forward the politics of international working class solidarity. We need to, uh, to fight for a revolution made by workers themselves and for a society where workers are in direct control. Uh, direct control of their lives, their schools, and then dr and direct control of their workplaces. Um, these are the politics of revolutionary Marxism from below. Um, it's the tradition of the ISO. It's the tradition we firmly stood in and have continued to stand in. I think it's the only thing worth fighting for. Thanks. <laughs>
We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.